class about Sukkot. One class about Sukkot. So I had to pick. What is the most important thing about Sukkot? No. No. Simcha. How do I know it's the most important thing? So I will, I will give you the reasons why I'm going to say it's the most important thing. But some of them may be offensive. So you have to tell me, you have to give me your consent to say the offensive things before I say the offensive things. I have everyone's consent? Mm-hmm. Yes? Okay. Women are not obligated to the mitzvah of sukkah and lulav. So if I only have to talk about one thing, I figured I could dispense of those. Whereas the holiday itself is called in our prayers the time, the festival of our rejoicing. And there is a dispute as to exactly the nature of the requirement of joy and how it applies to women, but it certainly does apply to women. And so giving all those factors, I have to pick just one issue with sukkahs, and I'm teaching women, I figure that I should teach something that is clearly relevant rather than something which is, you know, nice. Although it is Jewish custom that women have taken upon themselves in most communities to sit in the sukkah and amongst the Ashkenazim to also shake the lulav. Although some Sephardim do, some Sephardim don't. But, so not that discouraging you from participating in those mitzvahs by any means. On the contrary, I'd like to encourage you to participate in those mitzvahs. But if I have one class, I think I should focus on something which is um, clearly more central and relevant. That's why. Anyone offended? No. no. Good. All right. Do you want to hear a little technique? If you think something might, on the off chance, be mildly offensive, make a big deal about how offensive it could be beforehand, <laughs> and then it doesn't come off as offensive. Good thing to know in life. Expectations change how you experience reality. Okay, so Simcha, joy. It is the festival of time of joy. So. What I want to do is I want to approach this in a very different way. So I'm not going to talk about like how you should be joyous and it's important to be joyous and all that kind of stuff because that's very obvious. Joy is, joy, joy is good. We like joy. What we're going to do is we're going to try and understand joy and the centrality of joy in the context that we've been focusing up until now with Rosh Hashanah and the 10 Days of Tshuva and Yom Kippur and this rebuilding our relationship with Hashem and there are announcements to be made. No, no, no. So they're, they're working and they're going to be turning off the electricity for like five to seven minutes. So don't get scared of the lights and the air conditioning. You're all cheering the air conditioning. Okay. So, um, and the feel of that first part of Tishrei um, seems to be very different and almost in contradiction with the feel of joy and emphasis of joy of Sukkot. And the goal of the class is to understand how, on the contrary, the joy of Sukkot is a natural outcome of Rosh Hashanah, the Ten Days of Tshuva and Yom Kippur. So first off, just a little bit of basic background. If you read in the Chumash, um, let's make sure this is off. There we go. Spoke too soon. (laughs) If you read in the Chumash, there is no connection made between the festival of Sukkot and Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. I mean, they happen to be in the same month, but the festival of Sukkot is not really spoken about in connection with Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. Um, the festival of Sukkot can be understood as base, in, basic, in a biblical sense in, on two levels. Number one, it is, the, it is the final harvest festival, the three pilgrimage festivals, Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot, are all understood um, as harvest festivals because in Pesach, the first um, crops, the barley, has ready to be harvested. By Shavuos, the main staple grains of wheat are ready to be harvested. And by Sukkot, the summer has passed and all of the produce, fruits, vegetables, everything is ready to be harvested and the agricultural season has ended. And therefore, the joy progressively grows. So the first festival, Sukkot, Pesach, there's the, the requirement for joy is at a minimum. And then on Sukkot, the requirement for joy is at a maximum because you have completed the entire harvest cycle. Um, we who have grocery stores don't tend to think too much about this, but if you don't have grocery stores and like, you know, you're stuck with the agricultural cycle, the, the happiest time of the year is now. Why? Not, not literally now, but the, because that's when you have all the food. And the time of the year that's the worst, it's the end of winter, beginning of spring, right? 
That's when the food supplies are running out and you're hoping things are going to grow. Okay. <clears throat> now, and there's a lot of, and the, a lot of the things, I mean, the, 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 a lot of the ideas that we find in sukkahs can be connected to that. There's a lot of rituals we do, um, specific asking Hashem for water and things should be good in the winter season and things like this. Also, there's another idea is that the festival of sukkahs is part of commemorating the exodus from Egypt, that Hashem sheltered us when we left Egypt. And because he sheltered us um, in the clouds of glory, we're supposed to give recognition to that by sitting in the sukkah, which means in theory we should sit in the sukkah. Which holiday? Pesach. Pesach. Why don't we sit in Pesach time? Because Pesach time is the spring. And everybody likes to sit outside in the spring. But sukkah in Israel is hot and not comfortable. And so the idea is that we wait till it's a hotter time and people are starting to move back indoors to show that we're doing it for a mitzvah rather than just doing it because everybody likes to do it. Yeah? Can you repeat what you said, like the second one? So that the, the, the sukkah commemorates the, the um, clouds of glory that Hashem sheltered us in the desert. And therefore, in principle, we really should sit in the sukkah on Pesach, but... In order to show that we're doing it for a mitzvah, not just because we want to move outdoors after being cooped up in the winter, right? We wait till it's nice and you know hot, and people are moving back indoors rather than outdoors, and that's when we do the mitzvah. But there's not really a, a, a strong connection to Rosh Hashanah and to um, Sukkot and uh, to Yom Kippur. Um, and if you look in the Talmudic sages, you find these ideas that I mentioned developed at length. But you also start to see a connection between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Sukkot. Um, one of the ideas we find is that the idea of the lul of an esrog symbolizes the sense of victory that we stood in judgment before God over Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur and we are victorious in our judgment. God has decided that things are good for us. We should have a good sweet year. And so we're celebrating. Um, and so already in the Talmudic stages, we start to see this idea that there is actually kind of a continuity between the days of awe, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, and these festival of joy, Sukkot. So in that light, what I want to do is I want to shed a Hasidic lens on the whole discussion of the joy of Sukkot and the days of awe that preceded. Now, what I want to do in order for this to work is I want to discuss a few different ideas. The first thing I want to do is I want to discuss the idea of joy um, in Hasidus. And I want to contrast it against its opposite. Okay. So what is the opposite of joy in Hasidus? Does anyone know? Bitterness. What? Bitterness. Bitterness is an opposite of joy, but it is not the opposite I'm thinking of. And you're already thinking, how can you have more than one opposite? But I'll explain. Indifference. Indifference is not an opposite to joy. Sad. Sad could be an opposite to joy. So we have two of opposites. <laughs> But I want a different opposite. Depressed. Depressed is a mental illness. It doesn't feature in Chassidus. Delight. Pleasure. The opposite of joy, the opposite of simcha, is tainu, delight or pleasure. And that's intuitively obvious to all of you, yes? No. No? No? Oh, I guess I have to explain that then. Okay. First off, just to be clear, when we speak about something being the opposite, that means we're looking at a certain parameter, a certain aspect of something, and understanding something else to be either the inverse of that, or the absence of that, or in some sense mutually exclusive to that, right? So if I think of up and down as opposites, I'm talking about how down is the inverse direction of up, right? If I think of darkness being the opposite of light, I'm thinking of darkness as an absence of light, okay? So the, the, the energy and vitality of joy, when that is lacking, that's sadness. So in that sense, sadness is the, ap is the opposite of joy. But that's because it's like an absence, okay? Um, bitterness, I don't wanna get into because it's a little complicated, it'll take too much time. But pleasure, tainug in Hebrew, and joy, simcha in Hebrew, are opposites, not because one is positive one is negative because the direction they go is the opposite. The direction of joy is outward. The direction of pleasure is inward. Vayi'or. 
And we'll start with just a very simple thing. Um, have anyone ever read a good book, a really good book? Okay. Generally speaking, and if you're the exception, don't say so because it ruins the whole, like, you know, making life simple. If you're reading a good book, your attention, your mind is absorbed in the book, so you're not aware of your surroundings. And if it's really good, you're not even really aware that you are reading it. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so those that are sitting next to you, while they can pick up on the fact that you are having a positive experience, they are not part of that positive experience at all. That makes sense? On the other hand, when you hear really good news, I, t- I teach at a seminary, and every so often someone's sister or cousin gets engaged, and then it's impossible to teach for the next 10 to 15 minutes when that information somehow, you're not supposed to have phones in class, I don't know how this happens, but somehow that information gets into somebody's brain, somehow, magic in the middle class, and then it spreads around like wildfire, and then for the next 10, 15 minutes, it's impossible to teach. Why? It's contagious. It's contagious. This positive experience is being shared outward, right? That's joy. So joy is an outward flow of this kind of positive energy. And pleasure is where it's inwardly directed. And so joy brings a person to a deeper within themselves and their own personal experience. And joy has the opposite effect. Joy is contagious. Joy is embracing. Joy encompasses. That's why when we are joyous, we want to make a party. We want to make a feast. We invite other people. Um, that's why people who we often dislike, we are, start to think more positively of them when we are in a state of joy. Conversely, pleasure, even the people you like, you become a little bit oblivious to as the deeper your pleasure is. So it's not about one is positive, one is negative. One is taking the person deeper within to themselves and the other one is the opposite. It's turning the person outwards and, 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 and engaging everything and everyone around them. Does that make a little bit of sense? So let's just use some examples of different things in Judaism and see if this is more joyous in principle or more um, pleasure in principle. Okay, obviously there are things in Judaism which are really, you know, maybe neither. So let's take, for example, someone asked this, Shemona Esther, and we stand before God, that pinnacle of prayer. Is that a moment, supposed to be a moment of joy or a moment of pleasure? Pleasure. Pleasure. Prove it. You say it quietly. You say it quietly. And actually the Code of Jewish Law says you should say it in a way that you're not being very demonstrative. You're not supposed to move around. Now that can be understood both in the sense of the great awe you're feeling in being God's presence, but also the great pleasure you feel in God's presence. And an idea we're gonna come to a little bit later is that awe and pleasure are not actually mutually exclusive. Now, what about um, Shabbos? Joy? What about Shabbos observance lends towards joy? There is a mitzvah. It's a quite explicit as a mitzvah of pleasure. Oynik Shabbos, the delight in Shabbos, right? Which, we, which our sages instituted because most people enjoy good food, so you should have good food. But that's not the same thing as feasting. There's no mitzvah to feast. Okay. Um, on Shabbos, if you enjoy sleeping, should you sleep in a little extra? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So... As opposed to the holidays, the holidays were supposed to gather and make feasts. Okay. So they're called the times of, of, uh, of rejoicing. Okay. Um, what about a wedding? You sure? It's both. Where is the switch in a traditional Jewish wedding? Now, I want to be clear. There is a wedding which is halachic and there's a wedding which is traditional. And what I mean to say is like this. There is a halachic procedure for how marriage has to take place. For example, the bare minimum for a wedding is and one of the bare minimum you need to affect the halachic marriage. You need a Jewish man and Jewish woman who are allowed to marry each other. In addition to that, you need two Jewish males above the age of 13 who are observant. In addition to that, the man needs to own something that's worth at least 10 cents. You need a cup of wine, a piece of paper, and a pen to write something down on. And another seven Jewish men, they don't necessarily have to be religious, and a sheet to hold up as a canopy. If you have all of that, you can do a wedding. But is the traditional way of doing a wedding where the um, groom hands his 
bribe to be 10 cents in order to affect a marriage or would we use a, a ring? Right? Do we just invite the minimum number of people that are necessary or do we invite a lot of other guests? Right? There's traditional ways that things are done above and beyond the halakhic requirements. Good? So now, just like that, there's also the traditional kind of way. It's, a, it's supposed to be like it's, it's not traditional um, at, a, at, a Jew, at, at a Jewish wedding. Um, for instance, in the middle of the chuppah ceremony for the rabbi to crack jokes. Does that mean it's halakhically forbidden? If a rabbi feels it's an important thing to do for whatever reason, does he have the freedom to do so? But that's not the traditional way Jewish marriage has been done. What is the traditional way, what is the, what is the traditional demarcation between the pleasure versus the joy, the tainug versus the simple? When does that shift take place in a traditional wedding? Anyone know? After the chuppah. After the official procedures are done, um, and if you're Ashkenazi, it's like there's a very, very clear moment. It's when the um, chassan breaks the glass, right? And there's some mazel tov, and then the whole atmosphere changes, right? The tunes that are generally sung and played prior to that tend to be more solemn, more profound, more contemplative, not necessarily heavy. Um, obviously, different communities are different, right? Whereas afterwards, it's much more upbeat. There's this kind of shift. Right? And obviously, Sephardic traditions have their way, Ashkenaz have their way, but there's this general theme that we find that up to the conclusion of the chuppah is a more um, deep, introspective, profound, awesome time. That doesn't mean it's negative, so there's a sense of that there's a deep pleasure, there's a sense of coming in touch with something profound and important and wonderful, but it's very inwardly focused. And then that kind of explodes in the opposite direction, right, through the singing, the dancing, and the feasting that come afterwards. Right? And that's supposed to be a natural transition, right? It's not like you artificially stop one thing and do the other, right? But if you're really in touch with what's going on up to the conclusion of the chuppah ceremony, then that itself is the basis of that explosion of joy afterwards. Now that would parallel in Tishrei that we have up to Yom Kippur is one thing, and then subsequent to Yom Kippur we have a whole different energy. And Yom Kippur is the day when Hashem married the Jewish people. Are you aware of that? I thought it was Shavuos. Because that's when he gave us the Torah? Yeah. And it didn't work out. He gave the Torah a second time. You know when? Um, on Yom Kippur. <clears throat> so the real shift in the feel of Tishrei, when does the Sukkah spirit begin, even though the actual halach of Quarim joy is on the holiday, when does the real spirit of joy begin? The minute Yom Kippur is over, right? There's this shift. In fact, our tradition is that one should start building the Sukkah or at least speak about the Sukkah the night right after Yom Kippur. So there's this idea that as, you, as soon as Yom Kippur is over, we shift gears, but it's not really shifting gears. It's in like that way, that explosion the, the, the end of the chuppah, all that positive energy which was inwardly focused in that sense of deep pleasure and awe now gets turned into this outward um, in, in, in enveloping energy that brings us all together, that rejoicing, the joy, and that's the simcha, and that's, so if you, if that's the dynamic between these days of awe, Rosh Hashanah, ten days of tshuva and Yom Kippur, to the second half of Tishrei, festival of Sukkot. Um, and the, what I want to do is I want to take that basic idea and go a little bit deeper into the spirituality, what's going on in the relationship with God, how does that all work? But the idea is that the joy of Sukkot is not, okay, we're finished with like God judging us and now we're moving on to something completely unrelated. It's the process of Rosh Hashanah, the ten days of Truva and Yom Kippur reach a climax, reach a pinnacle at the end of Yom Kippur, which then turns from that inward awe and pleasure, the Tainuk, into that more outward, expansive, um, energetic joy, simcha, the rejoicing of Sukkot. Okay? And you can almost use this as an indication. How do you know how authentic your Rosh Hashanah, ten days of Truva and Yom Kippur was? How, does, how, how natural is it for it to get expressed as joy in Sukkot? In other words, 
If a person is not really joyous after the chuppah, what does that indicate about their relationship to what happened during the chuppah? Were they really in it? Did they really connect to it? Did they really appreciate it? Did they internalize it? Probably not. Okay. So it's, it's, in feel, it's opposites. But in substance, it's actually the same thing. Everyone's on the same page with the basic dynamic? Okay, now we're going to go a little bit deeper. Okay, so I want to move away from, um, you know, this stuff and talk about a philosophical concept that's found in Hasidus. This is abstract philosophy, okay? The, I, I want to speak about the idea of something being revealed. That things can be revealed and things are not revealed. So here's a simple example of what I mean by something is not revealed. If the lights are off, completely off, there's no light at all, then the objects in the room are not revealed. If the lights are on, they are revealed. Have the objects in any way changed? So what, what, do, we, what do I mean by if the light is on, it's revealed, and if the light is off, it's not revealed? It's not a change in the object itself. Relationship. But then you should be the subject of the sentence. I should say that you see the object or you don't see the object. But I'm saying the object is revealed. Right? This Tanakh, right? If there's no light in the room, this Tanakh is hidden. If there's light in the room, the Tanakh is revealed. But the Tanakh hasn't changed whether the light is on or off. So in what sense is the difference between it being revealed and not being revealed? It's not whether I see it or not. Maybe I'm not even in the room. Maybe a person's blind, right? Whether an individual sees this Tanakh or not is not what we mean when we say it's revealed. So what, 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 what is changing when the light goes on versus not going on? You're aware of something. No, so you did the same thing. You made it about you. I want to know what's changing about this. Nothing. Well, if it's nothing, then it doesn't make sense to speak about it being revealed or it not being revealed. You should, right? There's... N- I'm predicating something about it. I'm saying it is like this or it is like that. So if, it, if the physical book is not changing, what about it is changing? If it's hidden. What? No, when the lights go on and off. Lights off, it's hidden. Lights on, it's revealed. What about it has changed? Okay, good, good, good. The book can affect us, but let's, let's specify a little bit. The book can be seen. Now, how is that different than what was the previous answers? The previous answers were about whether it's you see it. So if the lights are on and no one's in the room, can the book be seen? Can it be, it, can it be seen? It can be seen, but you're not there to see it. Conversely, if you're in the room staring directly at the book, but there's no light, you can't see it. That's not a problem. That's not because you're in, unable to see it. That's because it cannot be seen. In other words, what makes the book visible is the light. There's two things here. When actual seeing occurs, you have the conjunction of someone's ability to see and the fact that the thing is visible. What is the light changing? Not your ability to see, but whether the thing is Visible. So for a blind person, they still can't see it even though it's visible, right? And a seeing person, the reason they can't see it in the dark is not because of something wrong with their vision, but because that thing isn't visible. So this is an important distinction to make in for many respects in Chassidus, but we're gonna, I'm going to use this distinction to get to a second point. Okay. Now I want to talk about heat. If something is hot, is that the same as it being visible? I mean, obviously not the same physically. Conceptually, is it similar? Well, if something is visible, that means that it's possible for you to see it if you look at it, right? If something is hot, what is it? What is it that also has it means it's going to have an effect on other things, right? What's the effect of hot things on other things? It changes the form. 
I have this, let's say, I have, I, have a, I have a hot fire over here, and I put a cup of water over here. What happens to that cup of water? It heats up, right? Is there a difference between the way the object which is visible affects the seeing person and the fire affects the cup of water? There's a very big difference. What's the difference? Something changes. Well, I mean, something's changing when I see something. I'm aware of it. I've not gained knowledge. That's also change. If, if this object is visible, right, and I'm standing right next to it, literally right next to it, right, right now, yeah, but I turn my head and face it that way, can I see it? No. In order for me to see it, what do I have to do? I have to look at it, right? I have to direct my attention towards it. In other words, something is, something is revealed, but it's revealed where it is. It isn't revealed somewhere else. So I have the book, the lights go on, now it's visible, now it's revealed, but where is it revealed? Here. So my attention has to be directed to here in order for me to benefit from its visibility. What about the fire? Is that how the fire works? No. The fire radiates heat, right? And so as long as you're not too far away from the fire, the heat of the fire will reach you. You don't have to attend to the fire. You don't have to focus on the fire, right? My cup of water doesn't have to like sink into the fire and like be it. No. The fire will extend its heat, radiates heat until it reaches the cup of water. You see the difference? Now, if you think about it, those are actually opposites, right? The fire is radiating its heat to the water but I am focusing my attention on the book, right? So both the book and the fire have this property. The fire is hot, the book is visible. It's visible because the lights are on. But then there's something, that, there's something very different that occurs. In order for me to have it be affected by the visibility of the book, I have to bring myself to the book. Not, not in the sense of physical movement, but in the sense of my visual attention. I have to actually look at it. Right? Have you ever spoken to somebody and they're not looking at you? How does that feel? Does it feel good? Doesn't feel good? Not great, right? And, and, there's, and there's, there's degrees of that, but it, right? why does it not feel great? They can, what's that? they can hear you. They're not focused. Ah. Because, the, because there's two elements. There's what... My words are like the fire. What is happening? They're radiating out of me, and so they're reaching that person. They don't, right? And they hear them, right? But if all that's happening is I'm, my words are radiating out of me and he, they're hearing them, I don't feel like really connecting. I also want to know that the reverse is happening. Not something from me is reaching them, but something from them is. And that comes through them looking at me. So I, they, they see me, right? Make sense? Okay. And so Hasidus speaks a lot about this idea. And I'll give you the terminology that's found in Hasidus. Hasidus speaks of the idea of going up and coming down. Um, God is not in the sky, so it's not like you go up this guy, get closer to God. The idea is like this. Going up would be like looking at something which is visible. It's, it, the lights are on, it's revealed, but where is it revealed? It's revealed in its place. It's revealed where it's located. So you have to... and. The terminology that's used in is ascend. You have to ascend, in this case, we mean not physically walk over, but place your focus, place your attention on that thing in order to see it where it is. But then you have other things, like say the fire, it's heat, right? Does, you, don't have to, you, don't have to, you don't have to ascend to benefit from the heat. The heat descends to you, okay? So this idea of something radiating out is called it off in Chassidus as the scent. And this idea of having to focus on something where it is, where it's located, that's called often the ascent. Okay. So now I want you to think, this is not like, it can become intuitive, but it's not like something that's intuitive before a person is exposed to. You have to think about it a little bit. Okay. So now let me ask you a question. We use the example of education. You have a teacher, you have a student. And obviously, if we're going to be hyper-analytical, we will find always elements of both. I want to speak about in general, overall, okay? This is an important idea that any real-life thing involves many, many, many different elements. But when you want to understand something, you often want to zoom out and simplify it. The overall dynamic between a teacher and a student is what? 
is one of ascent or one of descent. One of one of the students raising their, their themselves up to the teacher or one of the teacher um, radiating down towards the students. Which one? Descent. It's a descent. You're sure? No. <laughs> what? Uh, everything's a little bit of both. I want to know overall, what is the defining quality of that relationship? I think up. You think up? Because the student would be imparted with the knowledge of the teacher. But, but, but the question is, is how is that happening? Right? The, the water is getting hot, but that's happening by the, by the heat radiating to it, right? So down. So the answer is that there are two different types of teacher-student relationships. Now, I don't mean that it's both. I mean there's really actually two different types of teacher-student relationships. For instance, let's take this class as an example. This class would primarily be the downward type, meaning what? I have something and I am trying to present it to you. And so primarily what is going on is me trying to express things in a way that you can receive them. You can absorb them, right? Like the fire is radiating its heat and then that heat gets absorbed by the water and the water heats up. Now, obviously, you're not a completely passive um, inanimate object like the water, right? But that's overall the dynamic of this kind of a class. Now, do you have any classes where the teacher gives you um, assignments and you have to work on them? And if you get stuck, the teacher will help you, but basically you're kind of having to work things through on your own. Do you have any classes like that? So what's happening there? The teacher has some kind of knowledge and what do you have to do? You have to bring yourself to that place. And again, within that, it's more complex, okay? And you feel this sense that you have to like work. Now, again, you could have a lecture that where, where the, lec the lecture is very um, um, smooth and, it's, and it works off of a lot of um, shared knowledge and it's not very challenging and so it's very much that downward thing you could add some more elements but overall when it's the teacher sharing their knowledge that's downward when it's the student having to struggle to come to know things themselves based on the standards of the truth and the guidance that the teacher has has put in place that's the opposite dynamic does that make sense okay Let's talk about other things. Um, love. Which way, is love more of an ascent or more of a descent? Both, right? You have different kinds of love. So for instance, the kind of love that causes a person to obsess over their beloved, they're thinking about their beloved all the time, right? They, 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 they could just sit and stare at the one they love. What's that? An ascent or a descent? That's an ascent because they're bringing themselves mentally and emotionally to the beloved. Right? What would be what would be an example of where the love is a descent? What? That's not love. Hopefully it's not it's a very weird thing going on. Say <laughs> so I love you, go about go away. I mean, there, there are things, I could come up with some cases where that would, would actually be true. Maybe something like love between father and kids, like parents and children. So uh, you, could, but you, could, you can actually have dynamics of both the parents and children. So for instance, that sense that the child wants to live up to their parents, that's more of an okay. ascent type of a thing, right? Maybe it's like um, somebody's providing for the other one. Right, right. In other words, where, where somebody, somebody is is actually the love is manifest in, in acts of care and service and things like that, right? You're, you're radiating out your goodness in a way that it touches them. Right? So you see, this is, this is a very common dynamic and it's obviously much more complex than making it out to be. But now I wanna think about, are we comfortable with this difference between ascent, right? So the thing is like, if something is revealed, that doesn't necessarily mean you get it. Revelation is half the story. What's the other half? You have to ascend to that place of revelation, right? Just because the lights are on doesn't mean I see it. I have to look at it, right? But then when you talk about descent, it's very different, right? 
for descent, all you just need to do is be there. Right? If the, if the water is close enough to the fire, it will get hot. Does it, right? If you're in class, as long as you're there, meaning you're not distracted on your phone doing something else, you'll hear the ideas, right? Because it will present in a way that reaches you, right? Okay. What do we, what, so on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and, and the 10 days of Chu, Hashem is very revealed. He's very revealed. This time of great revelation. That's why they're actually called days of awe. Because when something profound, something beyond you is revealed, it, it, you, there's an overwhelmingness. That's what awe is. Okay. You know, if you stand by the Grand Canyon on a moonless night um, and, and there's no lights, you're not going to be filled with awe from the Grand It might be filled with awe by the stars, but not from the Grand Canyon. Why not? It's not revealed. But if there's light, then you could be. But that's provided that you're looking at it. If you're on your phone, it won't work. So Hashem is revealed on Rosh Hashanah and the days of Tshuva and Yom Kippur and He's so revealed and it's overwhelming. But what do we say about, about something? When it's revealed, where is it revealed? It's revealed in its place. Yeah? If the lights are on, I still won't see the painting unless I look at the painting. I still won't see you unless I look at you. If Hashem is fully revealed, will I sense Him at all? Not necessarily. What has to happen? I have to, I have to see it. What is seeing? What do we call seeing is this idea of, of bringing your awareness to him. So the whole idea of crowning Hashem king and shuva and all of that, I'm going to use this word, although it may not be this word, but all of that heaviness is part and parcel of that process of bringing ourselves up, focusing ourselves on God, drawing our attention to God. Going back to the example, when a student's in a class that is primarily this ascent type of learning, the student feels very much the, 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 the inertia in their own mind they have to overcome. There's presented a task, they don't understand, they have to work through it, right? It's hard, it's difficult, right? If they don't, if they don't motivate themselves, it can become very draining, right? They're dealing with something beyond them trying to come to it. So Hashem reveals himself in Rosh Hashanah, he reveals himself in Yom Kippur, that doesn't mean you get to sit back and bask in that revelation. What does that mean? That means you have to work very, very hard to focus on him, to see him, to bring your awareness intellectually and emotionally to that place. Does that make sense? Okay. At a wedding, let's just talk about the bride and groom for a second, okay? okay. What happens at a chuppah? Let's just start with like the very basics. At a chuppah. I don't mean the actual procedures of how they occur. I mean, what is happening? What is the difference between pre-chuppah, post-chuppah? Before the chuppah, not you're not married. After the chuppah, married. you're married. Okay, good? Okay. Let's be very direct, okay? If you're not married, what are your obligations towards each other? Nothing. If you're married, do you have lots of serious obligations towards each other? Okay. If you are not married, um, is it a problem to end up marrying someone, to go marry someone else? If you are married, is it a problem to go marry someone else? And there's a whole messy, complicated, legally, emotionally thing to deal with that? Yeah, okay. So that's a pretty radical change in your, in your, in, in your life. Your, your, your legal state, your duties, your obligations, right? And is marriage, a, is marriage a temporary condition? In other words, does it, does it expire at a certain point? So it's, it's permanent. It's not absolute. It can be undone, but it's, but it's permanent, right? Once you're married, you're married until you actively do the divorce thing to undo the marriage. So you went from not being married to being married, which changes your legal status. It changes your, your obligations. It, and it's a permanent change. That's what the philosophers call a big deal. Do you think you should be aware of that? Now, should you see that as a negative thing or a positive thing? It's a positive. It's a big deal, but it's a positive big deal, right? So you need to draw your attention up. You need to ascend. You need to look at, you need to gaze. What are you really doing? What are you engaging? as the bride, as the groom, right? 
And if you're one of the people that, are, that care about the human lives, you should also be aware of that, right? And so there's this, there's something which is a positive thing, yes, but a tremendous thing, an awesome thing, a powerful thing, right? And frankly, a bit of an overwhelming thing. And it shouldn't, and, it sh- and, and, and you should be fully focused on that. Yeah. So that's very similar to like this whole rebuilding our relationship with Hashem that we described in various aspects of the Rosh Hashanah, 10 Days of Truth and Yom Kippur. So is the, it's positive. But what do, we, what do we call a positive experience which draws you deeper into yourself, which takes over you? That's that, that's that experience of pleasure. And I mean, it's a very debased kind of thing. It's like the pleasure of eating lasagna, right? You should totally absorb lasagna. You don't know about anything else, right? But that's not what we mean. We want, you know, something that is going deeper into the core of, of your life. And so at the end of Yom Kippur, right, this... this Something has been achieved. That relationship has been renewed, right? There's forgiveness. There's atonement. There's, there's unity. There's all these good things, right? And we're supposed to get that. But that means we have to ascend. We have to, we have to gaze. We have to focus on that. And if you think about it, on Yom Kippur, do we eat? Do we drink? Do we do any of these other things? If I'm looking at one thing, can I be looking at something else? One of the, one of the things about this idea of ascent is it has a level, it has this quality of exclusivity. You can sit in the lecture class and doodle. You can. Like, really, you can, it's fine. You can sit in the lecture class and do a lot of other stuff. Now, obviously there's a point at which like you're just blocking out what's going on, but short of blocking out what's going on, you can, you can be doing other things. If you're in one of these classes where like, you have an assignment of having to figure something out and deepen your knowledge in a way that's not intuitive for you, you have to gather yourself totally into it. You know, how, I, I, I teach Kumar, and so when the Bacham are sitting there in Chavrusa time, how do I know how, if how serious they are? They're sitting there, they've got the Gemaras open, they're talking, and I'm on the other side of the room. How can I tell if they're serious they are? What? No, how do I tell how serious they are? They don't know it's you. If you. It's the same idea of reading. Yeah. When, you, when I see that they're so engrossed in... Yeah, I'm not talking about people who aren't learning the Gemara. When I see they're so engrossed in, in, in their learning, they're oblivious to what's going on around, there's, like, that's their, their consciousness is only that and nothing else. And you can see that in how people interact. And that they only stop when they hit a wall and get stuck and genuinely need help, then they're very serious. What if I see, the, what if I see like they're learning the Gemara and they're looking around and they're going back to it? Even if they're learning the Gemara, you can tell like they're not moving upwards in their understanding, not deepening their sense of what's going on. They get what they get, what they didn't get, they didn't get. Right? Rosh Hashanah, right? We have a lot of prayers and, 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 and the 10 days of Tshuva, we, 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 we try to be ex-religious. Then comes Yom Kippur and we literally pull ourselves away from our physical existence altogether as much as possible and devote ourselves to just an awareness of our connection to Hashem, nothing else. But what happens right after that? What happens right after is the exact opposite. In other words, the 10 days of tshuva is basically Hashem saying, I am revealed, look at me. And we look, and we look, and we look, and we gaze deeper, we gaze deeper. And as that happens, that changes how we feel about Him, how we feel about ourselves, what we want, right? It changes the whole quality of our connection to the point that we get totally, for a moment, caught up in it completely, the end of Yom Kippur. But can you spend your whole life just staring at something? Even if that person is your, the mo- per- person you, you treasure the most, right? your beloved, you know, whoever it is, if it's your spouse, your children, whatever, you can't spend your whole life just gazing at them, physically or mentally. You have a life to live. So what do you have to do? Go live your life. But here's the question. If you turn away and go back to live your life, what happens to that sense of Hashem, what happens to that sense of your beloved? What is it with the, what, where, where does that go? 
When I, when I turn away from the Sefer, I don't look at this book anymore, where does it go? It disappears. I mean, I can remember that once I was looking at it, I can remember what it looks like, but it's no longer part of my current experience of life. If up to Rosh Hashanah, from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, we were looking at Hashem, we were gazing at Hashem, and the deeper we gaze, the more our awareness is just of Him, and the less of our things, the point in Yom Kippur, we don't even eat, drink, etc. Right after Yom Kippur, we turn, and we go back to our lives. So what happens to our awareness? What happens to our sense of Hashem? If I turn away from the beautiful picture, I'm not seeing it anymore. I don't experience it. And that's because the picture doesn't radiate, does it? But a fire radiates. The sun, even when I'm not staring at the sun, I still experience the sun because it radiates light onto the earth, right? So Hashem follows us back to our lives. Now, it's not like he picks up and is following us back. What is he doing? He is, he's coming down. He's that radiating thing. And so what happens as we go back into our lives and we eat and we drink, what happens? We feel that warmth of Hashem enveloping us, coming over us. And so what kind of sense does that bring? Joy. Go back to the wedding, right? That deep sense of something profound, something wonderful, something transformative has occurred at the chuppah, right? It's not that, oh, it's over, now we go on to the next thing. Is that, we're good, okay, we're moving on, but we have a sense of that. It, 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 it's radiating, it's permeating everything. And so what ends up happening is, we don't just move on to the next thing, is that everything gets kind of, becomes a celebration of that. It's very interesting is that in the mitzvah of sukkah, is a very interesting mitzvah. What is the mitzvah of sukkah? I'm bringing this up in the context of joy, not in the context of talking about sukkah. But what is the mitzvah of sukkah? What are you supposed to do in the sukkah? You're not supposed to sit and eat. No. That's a myth. It's also a myth. You're not wrong, but you're wrong. There's ways in which you can say something is technically, it's technically correct, but come on, you see the point. To live. You're supposed to live in the sukkah. Now, the primary way of living is the place where you have your meals. But you understand, like, like the actual mitzvah is called yeshiva besukkah. It doesn't actually mean to sit. Yeshiva means to dwell. It's like not like sitting, sitting. Right? If I sit in the middle of the road, it's not called in that sense yeshiva. Yeshiva is the place where you dwell. So, basically, if you want like a rule of thumb, the mitzvah of sukkah is that you're supposed to, anything you do in the living room, dining room, or bedroom should be done and a sukkah. Anything that's done other places of your house is different because wh- why do you go to the kitchen? To produce food. Why do you go to the laundry room? To do laundry. Right? Why don't we sleep in the sukkah? That is an interesting Chabad thing about why we don't sleep in the sukkah. Um, I don't want to really spend a lot of time on it. Um, th- there's a whole discussion about it. Suffice it to say that it's not a universal custom. It's a Chabad thing. There are, actually, I think Bells also doesn't sleep in the sukkah. And if you live in a place where it's very cold, the Ashkenazic custom is not to sleep in the sukkah anyway. But, but, but for our purpose, there's not a whole thing about sukkah. But the living room, dining room, bedroom, these are the places where you, are, where you just live out your humanity. I'm a human being, and this is, the pla- this is the place where I live out my being a human being. Right? And it needs some demarcation because, you know, dining room, living room, bedroom, there's different aspects of being a human being. But, like, if the food would just magically show up, I don't need a kitchen. That's not really part of living. If the clothes would just magically be clean, I don't need that, right? When the Jews were in the desert, did they, did they have to cook food? They had the ma. Did they have to do laundry? No. Did they live? They lived. So you live in the sukkah. Okay. Now, the, stri- the, the technicalities of that are what you're saying is eating in the sukkah primarily, sleeping, but, but people don't know this. For instance, if you want to have a conversation with your friend, so you're not meant, you're not required to do this, but if you want to have a conversation with your friend on sukkahs, where should you have the conversation? In the sukkah, why? I always think it's funny. I see two people like standing outside the sukkah talking and then they want to eat something going to the sukkah. <laughs> like, 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 the, talking in the sukkah is a mitzvah to the point that according to many halakhic authorities, if you go into a sukkah that you otherwise would never eat in, which is not like such a common scenario, but let's say there's a sukkah you're not going to eat in, but all you're going to do is talk, you still make a bracha just on the talking. There's such an opinion. But it's, it's a living. So we're going to living our life. 
Where is Hashem? Hashem is saying, don't, don't, don't look at me. Don't focus on me. Don't gaze at me. Go live your life. And as you live your life, what, is go- what are you going to feel? You'll feel Hashem's will, Hashem's presence, Hashem's joy, Hashem's forgiveness, Hashem's... Why? Because it's being radiated outwards to us. Why do you think of something very interesting about Orthodox weddings? After the wedding, right? so the wedding is all about the binding of the chassan and the kal, the bride and the groom, they're bound together, right? Okay. What happens after the wedding? Like after the chuppah? Pictures. Okay. <laughs> Separate pictures out. That's like, that's so... So there's, there's, there, there is... A, Ashkenazim have a yichurum, Sephardim do not. I don't want to get those technicalities, but the yichurum is technically, is an interesting technicality. But then you go and you have this party, right? And where's the chasen? Where's the kal? Where's the bride? Where's the groom? The, 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 the groom is with his friends and his social scene, and the bride is with her friends and her social scene. So like, you just like undid the wedding on a certain sense, right? Like not legally, but psychologically. But the idea is, no, 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 the profoundness, the, the beauty, the depth of what just happened radiates into that social scene. So that what happens? Everybody is eating and talking and interacting, at least in principle, under this, um, under this umbrella, under this blanket of energy of, of this wonderful thing that just occurred. Right? So it's not that they're looking at it, focusing on each other. It's that this thing is like that fire that sheds its heat on the surroundings. It's like the sun which sheds its light onto the earth. And so what happens is that that depth of connection, right? That reconnecting, that joy, that essential bond, that, 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 that positivity, that forgiveness, all that stuff we've been speaking about, it no longer is something Hashem saying, it's here by me, focus on me, gaze at me, direct yourself to me, which comes at the expense of the rest of our human lives. It's the opposite. Shem saying, you go live your life and all that energy I'm going to radiate outwards to you. And you will live your life under that umbrella, literally like the canopy of the sukkah. And that sense that Hashem's presence is flowing over us as we live our human lives, that is the basis of the joy of sukkahs. That's the joy of sukkahs. The joy of sukkahs is like, I'm not happy because we have nice food. I mean, you could be happy because you have nice food. It's that... That thing which previously required me to focus entirely on God and ascend and withdraw from my regular human life now is the opposite. It's, 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 the, the, you know, it's the wind at my back. It's, 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 it's the sun shining overhead and I can live my life with all of this warmth and all this positivity flowing over me. Right? And that's the dynamic of sukkah. So sukkah is literally the inverse of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. But by inverse, it's actually the same thing. If you think about it, what is up and down? They're both the same thing. They're both movement, right? Both moving the horizontal. It's just flipping that energy around. Instead of all the energy about us focusing on Hashem, now the energy is Hashem making His presence felt in our lives. And so it's not days of tainug and delight and awe. It's days of... Rejoicing, literally feasting. In temple times, you know how sukkahs were celebrated? This is how sukkahs were celebrated. If you um, were close to Yerushalayim or you were exceptionally pious, you traveled to Yerushalayim and you would bring animals or purchase animals for sacrifices. And you would offer sacrifices and you would invite your family, extended family. You would invite you know, assuming that you're a normal person. You would invite some Levites because they didn't really have their own properties. You would invite orphans, widows, other poor people. And you make lavish, lavish barbecue feasts, right? You know, open fires, right? And, and, you know, dancing and music, wine flowing. So much so the rabbis actually instituted a rule. They actually had, they would have people going around to make sure that the men and women weren't intermingling too much because you know, when people are feasting, they don't always act as they should. Yeah. You ever heard the word Chag? What does the word Chag mean? It's a Hebrew word. Chag HaSukas. Chag HaShavuz. It literally means festival. Right? We call it holiday. It actually is a festival, like to, to feast. To have the, and they, 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 that's what it was. You go to the temple, right? And 
it's not you go to the temple and it's like there's this this solemn sacred. No, you go to the temple, you you get your you you, you bring your sacrifice, you bring home the, some of that meat, not home or whatever it is, and you make these lavish parties. The the Rambam says how is how is a chag supposed to be celebrated? We don't follow his rule exactly, but he, this is how he, he interprets this Talmudic passage quite literally. You should literally spend half of the daylight hours feasting. That's his view. You should spend half the daylight hours feasting. The Talmud says that a feast should be half for God and half for you, meaning half engage in prayer and Torah study and half feasting. And he actually, the Rambam says, no, 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 half means half. Right? And, and so the idea is that the presence of Hashem, that warmth, that forgiveness, that positivity, radiates outward. And again, that's what simcha is. So really, and this is the depth of what he's saying, is that really the simcha and sukkahs is not our simcha. It's not our joy. It's whose joy? It's Hashem's joy. What I say in the beginning, what is joy, is that when that positive energy is directed which way? Outward. Hashem is radiating all of that positivity that we rebuilt and we rediscovered by focusing on Him all that positivity that has now was within himself is now being radiated outwards. And it washes over our lives. And so really from a Hasidic perspective, it's like when you go to a place and everybody there is really joyous and they're celebrating, as long as you like don't try to be a jerk, what happens to you? How do you feel? That joy also flows through you, right? And so what you're experiencing is not your own joy, you're actually experiencing their joy. And the idea is that as Jews, if we're really going to be in touch with Hashem, what's happening is that we're not rejoicing because Hashem forgave us, but in a deeper sense, we're experiencing Hashem's joy that He forgave us. We're not experiencing our, merely our joy that we rebuilt the relationship. We're experiencing His joy in the relationship. And because it's joy, it doesn't get locked in Him where we have to ascend and focus and see Him where He's at. It radiates and extends outwards and, and flows over us where we're at. So Sukkot is a holiday where we, we feast, <laughs> we party, singing, dancing, eating, etc., 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 waving weird branches around also for some strange reason. Right? And you really, the more that a person raised their consciousness up, really focused on Hashem, let other things fall by the wayside as they go through Rosh Hashanah and Tendis of Truman Yom Kippur, that directly commence with that is the degree to which they'll feel Hashem's joy radiating over them and the joy of circles be a natural progression, natural continuation from that, that, that very awesome and somewhat heavy time period that we're about to enter, Rosh Hashanah and Kippur. And that's how Chassidus looks at this. There's no, you do this, you do this, you do this. There's a dynamic taking place and it gets cashed out in the joy of circles. Um. There was once, and this has to do with Simchas Torah, but I'm going to just group Simchas Torah for this point, for this class. There was one time on Simchas Torah where there was a, so in, in the Chabad tradition, let me say this right, in the Chabad culture, it's not a tradition, but it's a culture thing that many, many Hasidim feel that on Simchas Torah is a time to drink a lot of alcohol. Rightly or wrongly, but that is the cultural fact. And so one time, um, in the times of the fifth Chabad Rebbe, the Rebbe Rishab, pictures on the bottom left over there. There was a chassid who had imbibed um, way too much alcohol on Simchas Torah, which is meant to be an extremely joyous time. For our purposes, we're going to just treat it as a continuation of Sukkot. The next class, I'm going to talk about Simchas Torah and its uniqueness over Sukkot. But right now, I'm just treating it as a continuation. And he was crying. And he was crying over his spiritual state, how lowly his spiritual state was. Yeah, if you're going to cry over something when you're not being fully rational, I guess that's a better thing to cry about then. Yeah? And the Rebbe Rishab was, this was out of Febregen, the Rebbe Rishab said that this is a sign that he did not go through Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Because had he gone through Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, he wouldn't, he wouldn't be crying over his spiritual state. Because what is the, and I'm not advocating drink, but what does alcohol do is it gets rid of your inhibitions, it gets rid of your rationality, which is generally not a good thing, by the way. And so the kind of raw things come out. If you've gone through that process of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, you've been focusing on how Hashem is revealing Himself. You've been focusing on Hashem, you're drawing your attention to that. It, and, and as a result of that, you're, you're, you've undergone a change, right? And you've rebuilt that connection. 
when, when you're uninhibited, when you're not being so rational, what should come out then? That joy, that, that positivity, that sense that Hashem rejoices in the renewed relationship, that's what should come through. If what comes through a sense of my spiritual state isn't what it should be, I'm not good enough, I need to work harder, then what does that mean? That he might have gone through all of the halachic mitzvahs and all the rituals, but the actual spiritual dynamic of, 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 of growing and doing tshuva and returning to Hashem and crowning him king and realizing how much he, he's forgiven, none of, that, none of that really entered the person's awareness. Because if it did, what would they be feeling? They'd be feeling about Hashem's positivity, Hashem's forgiveness, Hashem's joy radiating through their life. And that, the reason I'm bringing up the story is that's an important thing, is that Sukkot, in this case we're still concerned, but Sukkot is really the, the litmus test of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. How do I know how legitimate it was? How natural is the joy? The more natural the joy of Sukkot, that's an indication, the more authentic, the more genuine Rosh Hashanah and days of Shuvah Yom Kippur were. And go back to the wedding, right? The person who needs to wait for the band to play good music before they start dancing after the chuppah is not the person who was really into it, right? You know, sometimes the, the, the bride or the groom, they have people really close to them, right? And the band isn't playing, but they're still dancing anyway. Those are the people who, like, they were touched. And so the joy comes out. And it's the same dynamic. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, um, yeah. Because your Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur was about being in touch with Hashem, right? Reconnecting to Hashem, recommitting to Hashem. So that means, like, it's like you go to a wedding, this couple got married, it's an amazing thing, it's a profound thing. The Chas and Kala's mothers are crying, right? The, the fathers, let's ignore the financial cost, the fathers' faces are beaming, right? Their friends, like, like, are annoyed that the band hasn't started yet, and you're, like, wondering when the barakas are being served. Like, clearly, you didn't, you're not, you didn't bring your attention, you didn't gaze, I don't mean physically, but, 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 but spiritually, mentally, emotionally, at what happened, and therefore, the joy that's going on doesn't, also doesn't hit you. Joy is dependent on the more you raise yourself up, the more you can feel Hashem coming down. That's the basic idea. And one other important thing about this, and there was the last thing I was going to say. If you don't realize that all of that hard spiritual work, the tshuva, the Kranksham King, of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, is going to lead to Hashem radiating His positivity, His love for us, His joy in us on Sukkot. If you don't realize that going into it, that means that you have a distorted sense of it, right? Imagine a person goes to a wedding, right? And they just have a sense of the seriousness of the legalities of what they're doing, the heaviness of the choice. They don't sense that this, is a, this ultimately is going to break out in song and dance and feasting, right? Granted, we're not at that stage yet, but when you go to the chuppah, you know like that's where this leads to, right? If you don't have a sense of the whole thing, in a certain sense, you don't have a sense of what it is, what's going on at all. Because not two separate things, not there's one part and another part. It's two aspects of the same development. I'll give you a, a, an analogy for this. You know, um, there's different stages in, in, in the development of children. So one stage, okay, um, is called being a teenager. And parents uh, do not like having teenagers. It's a general rule. Why? Why do parents not like having teenagers as a general rule? Well, I'm going to mention four things. One, the cuteness of being a child is gone. Right? The ability to have adult relationship doesn't exist. Right? Whatever the parent does is never good enough. Right? And yet you can't rely on the child's own independence to just let them do things. Right? So it's like you get, you get the worst of all worlds. Now, should parents be resentful that their children have become teenagers? No, because a parent should realize this is like a normal part of transitioning into adulthood, right? And so they experience it very differently, right? 
It's not like, oh, all of a sudden, like, I have this, 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 this. No, it's not a disaster. It's like, it's, it's like, and so you could have, like, this very, it could be very, very difficult to go through. At the same time, the parent can be incredibly proud of their teenager, right? Those are not mutual exclusives because they see it for what it is, right? If you don't see something for what it is, you, you have a warped thing in it. You have a warped sense of it. If you go through Rosh Hashanah and Ten Days of Tshuva and Yom Kippur and you don't see that this leads to the joy of Sukkot, then you don't really see what Rosh Hashanah and Ten Days of Tshuva and Yom Kippur are either. Not that you're supposed to be singing, dancing, and feasting at that time. Right? In fact, the Code of Jewish has to go out of its way to explain why do we even have holiday meals on Rosh Hashanah? Because it's a day of judgment. Isn't it? And the idea is that because of our confidence in that it will all work out. But, but the Code of Jewish Law has to justify it. It's not, it's seemingly not fitting. It's not a festive day. And we don't, we don't, it's, not, it's not called a Chag. It's not a day of feasting. Okay? But if you don't see how it leads to that, then you don't see it for what it is. If you don't see that, the, that, the, that despite all the seriousness of the choice to get married and all the ramifications, ultimately it is a positive thing that leads to an outpouring of joy, then you don't see it for what it is. Right. So, that, and that goes back to what I was saying. Pleasure and awe are not contradictory. You, pleasure is that sense of something positive that comes very deep, that you have to be very focused, you have to go within yourself. But, and the fact that it's overwhelming doesn't make it negative. The fact that there's a demand, that there's a, doesn't have to make it negative. And, and so it's both knowing that it, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur lead to Sukkot helps us have a more authentic Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. And also, the sukkahs can be used afterwards to really check how authentic it really was. And I'm, again, I'm not talking about the halachic observance, that you just do what it says in the Code of Shua, but in terms of the spiritual growth, these things are intimately bound up with each other. Um, there was something we're running short of time, so I'm just going to mention it very briefly. One thing about joy is that because joy radiates out, Joy has a way of enveloping in the sense of erasing difference. If you think about it, like in a really joyous thing, like people dancing, right? The fact that one person thinks one thing, one person thinks another thing, you have different agendas, different these kinds of differences kind of get, I don't know, erased, but their relevance is muted. That one of the effects of joy is it brings about unity, it brings about cohesion, because it's not about my unique individual experience, it's something that's radiating out from me, radiating through me, and so it kind of has this enveloping quality. Um, and you see this as also Sukkot, Sukkot is very much a holiday focusing on the unity of the Jewish people, um, the togetherness, that's a very important part of it. Um, and, and our sages actually say that the mitzvah of Sukkah is unique in that, at least in theory, from a legal point of view, you could make one Sukkah for all the Jewish people. Um, we could all do the mitzvah of sukkah together. And that's kind of reflecting that Hashem's compassion, Hashem's forgiveness, Hashem's love, all of the things that Hashem's interest in our service of Him, right? all those things we're talking about, crowning Hashem King, Yom Kippur, all of that, when it radiates out from Hashem, it radiates to all of us, not just each individual separately, but radiates as a community. It's okay? so a togetherness. And that's an important thing to realize is that you can also tell how much the joy is, is genuine by how much it creates feelings of community and camaraderie. So Chassidus actually says that the sign that someone's in a true state of joy is that the, someone who they have a grudge against, someone who they see, normally see as their enemy, they don't see as their enemy anymore. They actually are happy that they came. The person you normally annoyed with, you're happy came to your party. That's a sign that you, you reach ultimate joy. And that, if you think about it, if it's radiating out, it radiates outward in all directions to all of us and develops. That's an important aspect of this as well. All right. Have a wonderful year, the rest of it. Have a wonderful new year. Um, and uh, next year we'll talk about some...